Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. Um, I'm going to start by reading you a story. Now, you might think that as I read this story, you think this is for Children's Sunday. No, this is not for Children's Sunday. This is for Parents' Sunday, okay? This is a children's story. Um, You might be familiar with it, uh, but I'm going to read to you the 1865 published version of the remarkable story of Chicken Little. And then we will dive into scriptures and figure out what this might mean for us today. But I submit that this story might might have been taken from Matthew chapter 24. And um, as we look into Matthew chapter 24, we're going to realize um, this story plays in a little bit. So if you will, um, just enjoy story time with Pastor Peter, okay? <laughs> the remarkable story of Chicken Little. I'd show you the picture. It's this great um, uh, original cover from the 1865 version of this um, story. Did you ever hear of Chicken Little? How she disturbed a whole neighborhood with her foolish alarms. Well, Chicken Little was running about in a gentleman's garden where she had no business to be. And she ran under a rose bush and a leaf fell on her tail. And she was so dreadfully frightened and she ran away to Henpen. Oh, Henpen, she said, the sky is falling. What Chicken Little, how do you know that? I heard it with my ears, I saw it with my eyes, and part of it fell on my tail. Well, come then, said Henpen, let's run as fast as we can. And so they ran until they came to Duck Luck. Oh, Duck Luck, said Henpen, the sky is falling. Well, how do you know it, said Duck Luck. Chicken Little told me. Well, Chicken Little, how do you know it? Well, I heard it with my ears, and I saw it with my eyes. And part of it fell on my tail. Oh, well then let us run, said Duck Luck. And they went on until they came to Goose Loose. Oh, Goose Loose, said Duck Luck. The sky is falling. Why, Duck Luck, said Goose Loose, how do you know? Well, says Duck Luck, Hen Pen told me. Well, Hen Pen, how do you know? Well, Chicken Little told me. Well, Chicken Little, how do you know? Well, I heard it with my ears and I saw it with my eyes and part of it fell on my tail. Well, run, run as fast as you can, said Goose Loose. And away they went until they came to Turkey Lurkey. Oh, Turkey Lurkey, says Goose Loose, the sky is falling. Why, says Turkey Lurkey, Goose Loose, how do you know it? And says Goose Loose, Duck Luck told me. Well, Duck Luck, how do you know it? Well, Hen Pen told me. Well, Hen Pen, how do you know it? Well, Hen Pen says, Chicken Little told me. Well, Chicken Little, how do you know it? How can I help but knowing it, said Chicken Little. I heard it with my ears, I saw it with my eyes, and part of it fell on my tail. Well, come, let us run, said Turkey Lurkey. And away they all went, until they met with Fox Locks. Oh, Fox Locks, says Turkey Lurkey, the sky is falling. Well, who told you, said Fox Locks. Says Turkey Lurkey, Goose Loose told me. Goose Loose, who told you? Well, Duck Luck told me. Duck Luck, who told you? Hen Pen told me. Well, Hen Pen, who told you? Well, Chicken Little told me. Chicken Little, how do you know it? 
Well, I heard it with my ears, and I saw it with my eyes, and part of it fell on my tail. Well, make haste, says Foxlox, and come into my den, all of you. So Foxlox opened the door, and in went Turkey Lurkey. And as she went in, Foxlox bit off her head, threw it one way, and the body another. Then went in Goose Loose. Foxlox cut off her head, threw her in. Then came Duck Luck. Foxlox did the same by her. Then came Hen Pen. Foxlox bit off her head, threw it one way, and the body the other. Then came Chicken Little. Foxlox caught a hold of her and ate her all up. Then finished his supper with the rest. And all of this came from the foolish fright of Chicken Little. Parents, bedtime story for your children tonight. Okay. Do you remember that in the Disney version or the Pixar version? No. It was a great story of overcoming adversity and, you know, growing up. And I don't even remember. It was a cute little story, right? That is not the original version of Chicken Little. Okay. Um, now that you know the truth that Chicken Little did not end well, okay, heads being bit off, bodies being thrown asunder, much carnage, the fox with a full belly, okay, um, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about what that might mean for our lives. Um, how many of you have read the Left Behind series? Show of hands. Okay, I have, uh, most of them. I got kind of bored halfway through. Um, how many of you have seen uh, an article or a news story on how the end times is coming? Anybody? Okay, Facebook feed? Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Um, how many of you have seen a news report or something on the Discovery Channel about the apocalypse? Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Watched a movie with that theme? 2015, I mean, all these movies, okay? I Googled the last days, okay? I came up, this is a hodgepodge of everything that I've seen. A timeline, which I, I can't, I can't make sense of. Um, living in the last days. Prophecy declares that we are living in the last days. Now the end begins. This one had some political theming to it. I'll leave it to your imagination and your own beliefs in terms of what political theming there was there. Um, but, I mean, you can find every political theming with the last days attached to it. So, okay. Um, left behind series. Just a signpost. The end is near. Okay. These are just the first Google images that showed up. Um, the sun exploding. Okay, and then my favorite was the Sun magazine. Um, fiery vision of Jesus appears uh, as the Columbia explodes over Texas. Where and when will Jesus return? Can you identify the site of the second coming? And it's a picture. Okay, um, I tell you, if you Google end days, revelation, uh, all of these kinds of phraseologies, you are going to get so many overwhelming concepts about what's about to happen to the end of the world that you might panic. You might be like uh, Chicken Little and go, oh, you know, because you don't know what's coming and you get confused by everything and something bonks you on your noggin and then you panic over it. Um, the end of the world, okay, or the return of Christ, as we uh, in Scripture would understand, is a question that has consumed the minds of people for generations it started with the disciples, which we're going to read today. They asked the question of Jesus, how are we going to know? How are we going to know when the end of the world is coming? Chapter 24, which we're going to start with today, is Jesus. And he's going to teach on the end of the days. He's going to teach on his second coming. 
And more specifically, and more importantly, he's going to teach about the attitude of believers during this time. Then we're going to get to chapter 25 in a few weeks, and he's going to continue in this idea of the end times, and he's going to talk about how believers are to be prepared and what we will be accountable for on the day of judgment. We are going to find it is not very much like this kind of panic ensuing conversation, okay? We are not going to find panic in the scriptures. We are going to find hope in the scriptures. We must not fall prey to chicken little syndrome when we have a God whose name is Jesus who holds all things together, okay? Um, So we're going to take several weeks on these two chapters. We're going to look at what Jesus said, and we're not going to speculate about other things. Like a few other topics we've handled in this gospel thus far, it is a far larger topic okay, than I can handle in a handful of sermons. Frankly, it's a far larger topic than most seminary classes can deal with in any one given semester. And there are books and books and books that are written on the topic of eschatology, i.e. the end times, i.e. how is God going to wrap up the world with a bow? There are smart people who spend their entire lives studying this theology. We're going to take a few weeks, we're going to approach it biblically, and we are not going to fall prey to fear or cultural views. But before we begin, we need to understand one thing about biblical prophecy, okay? When we read biblical prophecy in the Old Testament, there are, well, there's there's two ways of looking at the prophecy. Someone says, prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. And it means something will happen in the imminent days that the prophecy was made. And something will happen much later on down the road in human history. Okay, so what we call this is near and far prophecy. If you will, for a moment, close your eyes. And imagine that you're hiking through a field. And you see in front of you a large mountain. Okay, and you go, I'm going to go hike that mountain. And so you hike and you hike and you hike. And you get to the top of that mountain, and you look out from the peak, and you see a bigger mountain that is behind that mountain. And what you realize is, when you were back in the field, you didn't see that small peak. You just saw the two mountains simultaneously together. And it looked like one mountain, but as you got closer, you reached the nearer mountain first, and then realized, there is still more field to hike before I get to that second mountain. Does that make sense? Okay? That's what near and far prophecy is like. A prophecy is made, and then the near mountain happens, and then more time happens, and the true larger fulfillment of that prophecy happens later on down in time. A lot of what we're going to read today is near and far prophecies, okay? And we need to understand that so that we know some of the prophecies that we're going to read from the Old Testament today have already had a near fulfillment. Some of them have not had their far fulfillment. The prophecies that we read in the New Testament, some of them have had their near fulfillment. Some of them have not had their far fulfillment, okay? Um, And so um, we just need to kind of have that wrapped our brain around. Today's text is primarily going to deal with a near prophecy fulfillment, i.e. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them something is going to happen in your lifetime. From our perspective in history, that's already happened. Okay? The disciples have lived and died, and so they have lived out their portion of the prophecy. 
there are going to be some things today that are going to point us towards that larger mountain that is yet to come. So what we need to understand is that Matthew is um, pointing out to us, we live in the already but not yet kingdom. We've talked about this before, right? We already live in the kingdom of God. It's just not fully realized. So um, the scope of human history began at some point. Um, Jesus entered into human history and the yellow, I used yellow to reference his kingdom because he's God and yellow seems good. Um, And the longer we go through human history, the more his kingdom comes into play where we live until at some point in time, Jesus comes back and we're bright yellow in the full kingdom of God, right? So as we move through human history, more and more realization of God's kingdom comes about in our world. As more and more people come to know who Jesus is, the kingdom is more and more realized on earth. We are a very tiny sliver of human history, okay? We are here in this blue dot. We are in the already kingdom. We're already in the presence of God because he already came and brought his kingdom to earth. But we're not yet in the true fulfillment of the full kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Okay. So some things have already happened. Some things have yet to happen. And this is where we live, kind of in the in-between. Okay. In fancy church language, we live in the inter-advent period. Okay. It just means we live in between the first advent, the first coming, and the second advent, the second coming of Christ, okay? Inter-advent period for those of you who like those things, okay? That's where we live, and this is where we're going to start reading scriptures. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read Matthew chapter 24, um, just bit by bit as we walk through it this morning. So, Lord, um, we've already read a story. It's not scripture. We can't take any... uh, any gleanings of our own life from that is the word of God. But Lord, we are about to read the story, the story that you've given us to learn from, to guide our lives by, to teach us and rebuke us and encourage us. This morning, you are about to talk to us about the end times, things that have already occurred and things that will occur. I pray that we would have a mind after your mind and a heart after your heart that we would have clarity of the things that you are talking to us about. And above all, Father, that we would not have a heart of fear, like culture would have us have, but a heart of confidence in the fact that you love us so much and that your heart for us is to be with you. Though there might be difficult things to endure, we don't endure them alone. We endure them with you. And we come out mature and looking like you because of the things that you walk with us in. Pray that as we read your scriptures, we would find hope and confidence in you as our steadfast rock. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read this um, uh, kind of section by section as we move through it. So I'm just going to start with chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Now, if you remember, we ended chapter uh, chapter 23. Uh, Jesus has literally just pronounced seven woes on the Pharisees and the scribes about all the ways that they were hypocritical. And he ended with, you won't, uh, your house is desolate and you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he walks out of the temple not to return again. Okay. So we pick up the story with Jesus leaving the temple. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And his disciples came to him and pointed out all the buildings of the temple. Then he answered them, Do you see all these? Well, truly I say to you, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and privately said, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the end of the age? That's a big question, right? Um, So Jesus kind of dives in with his disciples at this point. Jesus' exit from the temple um, in the end of 23 was symbolizing God's abandoning the holy place. No longer was the temple going to be the center of religious experience anymore. We see this in Ezekiel 11 when it says this, The glory of the Lord departed from Jerusalem and withdrew to the Mount of Olives. That's a quote from Ezekiel 11.23. The glory of the Lord departed from Jerusalem and withdrew to the Mount of Olives. And then we read in Matthew Jesus left the temple and went away, and then he sat on the Mount of Olives. The glory of the Lord left the temple, left Jerusalem, and went to the Mount of Olives. This passage is just the same. Okay, here's a map for you guys. This is Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. Here's the temple area, okay, the old city of David, the upper city, some other areas, the lower city, okay, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. Here is the Mount of Olives, where the green dot is over here. So Jesus was leaving the temple, and he was walking to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, okay? And as they were leaving, the the disciples were drawing attention to the temple grounds. You might kind of think that that's weird, like they just left the temple, so why are they pointing out the temple properties? What we need to understand is at this point in time in history, the temple compound was undergoing a major renovation, a major beautification process begun by Herod the Great. And it would take a long time. It took several, many years for this process to be complete. It was very likely that as the disciples were leaving with Jesus, they were commenting on how impressive the buildings of the temple compound were. Hey, Jesus, isn't it great how beautiful the temple is? How beautiful is it going to look? Don't you do that when you walk through an area that's being renovated? You're like, oh, I can't. it's going to look so great when it's all done. If you're renovating your kitchen, I can't wait to see what it looks like. It's going to be fantastic when we actually get to move back in there and experience that. That's what the disciples are doing. Oh, Jesus, it's going to be great when we have this area over here for worship. And when the basin over here is finished, it's going to be fantastic. And this great new Holy of Holies is going to be fantastic. And we're so excited to go worship there. And, and Jesus says, you want to know what? Um, There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. I.e., see all this beautification? It's not going to last. Jesus' response probably was very shocking. Not one stone of this new temple was going to be left on itself. They sat down with him on the Mount of Olives and they, they asked two questions. Okay, if that's true, when will the temple be destroyed? And how will we know you will return, when you will return? These two questions show that the disciples understood the idea of already not yet. Something would happen now and something would happen later. When will you destroy the temple? That's the, you know, now thing. And how will we know you will return at some point later on down the road? The disciples wanted a road map, okay? They were curious and asking what culture is asking. What's the date and time of the end of the world, and how will we know when it happens? How can we be prepared? And so Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, doesn't answer their question directly, right? They ask very specific questions. We want to know when, and we want to know 
how to be prepared. And he responded in this way in verses uh, 4 through 14. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. There's no timing there. He answered their two questions with, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Then you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. This is going to take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Well, thanks, Jesus, for not really answering their question. The disciples wanted specifics. Jesus didn't give them specifics. He answered their question with, do not be deceived. Jesus is less concerned with that we know the time and more concerned with, do we know him? Okay? There's a really big mental shift there. Less concerned with the timeline. He's more concerned that we know him. Jesus was concerned about false prophets. He emphasized that multiple times. False messiahs who would come and preach a gospel, leading people away from the kingdom of God. He wanted his disciples to not be deceived. And when we read through scriptures, okay, there are just a handful of examples, not all of the examples, a handful of examples of people who are named in scripture that arose to lead people astray. Thudius, you find it in Acts chapter 36, if you want to mark them and read them later. Acts chapter 36, or Acts chapter 5, 36 and 37, talk about two guys, they named them, Thudius and Judas the Galilean, who arose and preached a false gospel and led multitudes away from the gospel of Christ. And then there was, quote unquote, the Egyptian, that's who he is called, in Acts chapter 1, verse 38, who again led multitudes away from the gospel. And then there's this guy named Bar Kokhba. Um, You don't read about him in scripture, but extra-biblical historical record. So when you read historical writers of the day, um, Eusebius, Josephus, the guys that lived in that time, wrote the history of their people. It's not canon, it's not the word of God, but it's accepted historical document. We read about a guy named Bar Kokhba. He was called Messiah by a leading rabbi of the day, Rabbi Akiba. And because he was named Messiah by this rabbi, the result was there was an outbreak of a war, which we call the Second Jewish War, something that's written in world history textbooks, the Second Jewish War in AD 132. And if you read about the Second Jewish War, it ended in the horrible destruction of Judea and Jerusalem in 135 A.D. Man was proclaimed as a false messiah, led people astray, 
the second Jewish war came about, it destroyed Jerusalem and Judea right after the temple finished being built. Okay? Um, God is very serious when he says people will rise and try and say they are God. They will lead you astray, and it will only lead to death and destruction. Jesus' point is clear. While these folks will arise, they will only lead to panic rather than peace. His disciples are to have nothing to do with rumors and speculations and Facebook feeds and news articles and Discovery Channel shows which have nothing to do with Scripture and are all about cultural references and insecurities and misbeliefs. False prophets will cause division and destruction. The world will continue to decay in sin. This is a fact. From the garden down through time, the world is continuing to decay in sin. From the very first sin in the garden to the very last moments of this world, as time goes on, sin continues to unravel our world. War and famine and natural disasters, Jesus says, they're to be expected. Wars because people sin against each other. Personal wars. Vendettas against individuals. People we hate and so we try and knock them down one. Nations war against one another. This is new to us, right? These things happen because as a world we don't live in peace with one another. There's sin that we do. Sin that is done to us. The world is painful. And as time goes on, Jesus says, just expect it to get worse. The more sin gets a hold of people's hearts, the worse the world is going to look. All, as culture turns away from God, it will vilify and persecute those who hold to kingdom values. This is, this is all of what Jesus is saying. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death because of my name. If you bear my name, you will ultimately become a target for persecution and potentially death. The picture painted by Jesus of the world to come was bleak for his disciples. But he gave them hope in the midst of this apocalyptic view. If you continue to repent and hold fast to the kingdom of God and the gospel of my name, you will be saved. Meaning your soul will be saved even if your body perishes. Okay, Because he does say you will be put up to be delivered for death. But if you hold fast to the end, you will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom, Jesus closes with this section, shall be preached to all of the world as a testimony to all of the nations. And this was the mission of Jesus, right? That every tongue would confess that he is Lord and every knee would bow before him. It's a testament of the great commission. Okay, we see that at the end of the gospel that Jesus sends his disciples out into all the world. And we see it in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. God's kingdom will advance even though the world decays. Okay, This section of scripture, Jesus is saying, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be kind of difficult. My 11 faithful disciples, you might die in the process. But God's kingdom will keep going. And this is the good news, that God's kingdom will keep going, and if you persevere, you will be saved. And then he continues, verse 15 through 28. 
Mine is titled The Abomination of Desolation, which is such an encouraging um, title. So, Jesus continues, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or in the Sabbath, for there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will perform great signs and wonders, so to lead you astray, if possible, even the believers. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the chicken little portion of the story. This is the part that is disturbing when you read it. You're like, Jesus, you're talking about people being led away to their death because they believed something they shouldn't have believed. At this point, Jesus still has yet to answer the disciples' two questions, when and how will we know? He's given a general rundown, but now he turns back to the first question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And while he doesn't give a specific date or time, he draws the disciples back to Daniel's prophecy and then builds on it. Now, we don't know Daniel's prophecy real well because we don't memorize scripture the same way that Jews did in that day. So let's look through Daniel's prophecies, which is what Jesus was talking about. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. On the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the end is poured out on the desolator. Ooh, don't like how that sounds. Okay? Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 through 32. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce those who violate the covenant. Daniel 12, 11. The time between the offering being taken away and the abomination will be 1,000 290 days. These are the prophecies that Jesus is referencing. Um, see, Jews understood that Daniel's prediction was fulfilled. Daniel's prediction had a fulfillment date. The Jews could go, we read the book of Daniel. We know what Daniel was talking about. Okay? Daniel's prophecy, according to the Jews was fulfilled in 168 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes erected an altar to the Greek gods of Zeus inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. And then, to make matters worse, as if he was erecting a god, a false god's idol in the Holy of Holies, he said, I'm going to offend Jewish people even more 
and I'm going to take what is the most unclean thing I can do, run a herd of pigs into the Holy of Holies, and I'm going to slaughter all of the pigs inside the Holy of Holies in front of the altar of Zeus. Then he thought, that's not enough. I'm going to destroy the temple in part and its precincts, the city of Jerusalem, and thousands of its inhabitants. Daniel's prophecy was talking about 168 B.C., the time which Jewish people looked back and said, yeah, that was an abomination of desolation. It was a total abomination to erect a false god statue in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells, and then to kill the most unclean animal, which we're not supposed to touch, eat, or look at, inside the Holy of Holies, and then he ransacked the city and killed people. And it was horrible. It went down in history as one of the worst days. The abomination of desolation, 168 B.C. Now, Jesus used that prophecy. He said, remember what Daniel said. He said, remember how that was fulfilled? Well, it's going to happen again. There was a near fulfillment to the day of Daniel. Now we're going to have another fulfillment in your day and age. Jesus is saying, look for it. It's going to happen soon. The temple will be destroyed again. Now from our vantage point today, we can look back and we go, oh yeah, clearly 168 B.C. happened. But we can also look back at shortly after Jesus said these words, what happened in history, chronicled in history. In 70 A.D., Roman armies assaulted Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. An abomination of desolation. They wiped out the holy dwelling place of God, ransacked it. For the loyal people of God, that began, began a long period of persecution in which many Christians were killed and others had to flee from Jerusalem. No longer did they have a holy place of worship. No longer could they celebrate their festivals. This was a beginning of an abomination for their life. We can read in secular history the chronicles of this, Josephus and other authors, who wrote about the persecution of Christians. Those who followed God were crucified for miles and miles and miles of road under Diocletian and other emperors, an abomination. The temple was wiped out. Many upon many thousands were murdered. In fact, we can read in history about how they fled in great haste to escape what fell upon their city to mountain dwellings in Pella, where cities were erected, temporary dwellings were erected, so they could escape what was happening in their city. Just like Jesus said, Things bad are going to happen, and when they happen, you're going to flee to the mountains. Don't stop and take your coat. Don't stop. Don't pass go and collect 200. Just run the heck out of Dodge. It is going to be so bad so quick. Get the heck out of Dodge. And that's what they did. We saw it fulfilled in 186 B.C. and in 70 A.D. There's one box empty here. We'll get to that in a minute. Near prophecy to Daniel... Near prophecy to Jesus. We have a far prophecy we've yet to deal with. Jesus said that the believers would have to take to their hillside. They would have to do it quickly. And we know that this is when they fled to Pella in 70 AD. And 
And then Jesus revisits this idea that there will be false Christs, false prophets. So they fled, right? They're in the city, or they're in their new city in the mountains of Pella, hiding out in caves. And Jesus says, people are going to come to you, and they're going to urge you to come out. Hey, we see Jesus. It's okay to come out again. He's over here in this campment. Or Jesus, I saw him. He's in this hillside over here. Or Jesus, I was just talking. Come follow me. He's right over here. And what does Jesus say? Don't go with them. Don't believe them. You can't know when I'm coming. It'll happen like that. You won't get warning. Don't believe the people that say the the leaf fell on their rooster tail. Don't believe the sky is falling epidemic that's going to happen. It will ultimately what? Um, As he ends his verse here, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. Wherever Chicken Little tells her story, there you will end up in Fox Lox's den. Okay? There's nothing new under the sun. The story of Chicken Little was taken from this passage. The idea that one person tells another and they believe that false lie and multitudes are led astray. And ultimately, they are led astray to their death apart from the gospel of Christ. They've been led to something that is a false gospel. And it will lead to their demise. Um, Backtrack my page here. So, these poor disciples, right? They just wanted a road map. When are we going to... When are we going to find Jesus coming back? Um, there's the chicken little. Okay, this is the 1960s version, Disney chicken little. Um, the sky is falling, pointing to a board. It got, it's not the sky even. Um, yet people believe, and people are willing to believe. We must not be led astray is what Jesus says. Do not get caught up in the false stories Do not become a corpse for the vultures. There is truth to be had. We must receive the truth. The disciples wanted a road map. But Jesus keeps telling them how bad the road trip is going to be. Jesus, just tell us when we're going to get there. Road trip's going to be horrible, guys. Potholes, broken tires. It's going to be rough, guys. You're going to get stranded in the desert. I mean, the road is going to be difficult. And the disciples are like, just give us the end date, folks. I mean, just let me know when I can hope that this will be over. And again, he doesn't really give a great deadline. He just ends with a bit of hope. For the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Suffering won't go on forever. Because he loves us, as rough as days might get, they will not be terrible forever, i.e. the road trip will have an ending at some point. Verses 29 through 35. The coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes on earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels out with loud trumpet calls. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as branches become tender and put out its leaves, so you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, 
know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So now Jesus is addressing the second question. He addressed the first one. When will the temple be destroyed? It will be destroyed, is what Jesus said. And it will be rough for you. I'm not going to tell you when. Second question, when will you return? Jesus looks to the future here. Here's the third one. End of the world to be announced. Okay? Um, We don't get to know when this happens. This looks to the future. As far as the disciples and perhaps us are concerned, at some unknown point down the road, Jesus is coming back. There will be no warning. There will be no chance for anyone to say, hey, I deciphered the code in the Bible by alphanumeric substitution and adding up some weird kind of thing and looking at all the stuff on the Discovery Channel. I know the day and hour. No, they don't. Jesus himself said, only the Father knows. So if Jesus doesn't get to know while he's walking on earth, we don't get to know when we're walking on earth. We don't get to know. We just know that it will happen at some point. At some point down in the future, Jesus says, there will be another desolation of abomination that will be greater than all of the previous ones. Like the altar that was set up for Zeus and the destruction of the temple in A.D., the last one will be the largest and the worst. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, that day meaning the biggest and last abomination. And the man of lawlessness is then revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against God. And he will take his seat in the temple of God and he will proclaim himself to be God. Jesus is talking about at some point in the future, something is going to happen in which case a man is going to sit on the throne and say, I am God. Well, that's not a good thing to say if you're not God. God doesn't like that. He's jealous for his name. And this is going to be the final abomination. Only after sin and lawlessness has done its absolute worst will Jesus come back and he will return suddenly. He used a parable to help his disciples understand this. When you see a fruit tree put out its leaves, growing greenery on itself, you will know that summer is close, right? When the leaves turn green and the thing starts to bud, you know, hey, it's almost summer. So then, Jesus says, when you see the world becoming more and more lawless, less and less loving, more and more hostile to Christians, less and less recipient of the gospel, then you will know that I am near. As parents, let's put it this way. When you are on a long road trip with your children, what's the question they ask in the back seat? Are we there yet? When will we get there? My parents used to answer, we took road trips every summer. I remember a very long one. I actually kissed the floor of my kitchen when I got home. I was so done with that month-long road trip. I asked my parents, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Like daily. What my parents started answering was, we'll get there when we get there. Okay? Because, you know, we might stop along the way. We might, they didn't know exactly what time. We'll get there when we get there. 
We took road trips in college. There was a guy, uh, our choir and orchestra would take trips together. There's 200 of us traveling together, 150 of us traveling together, big charter buses. And there was a guy who is one of the leaders of the group. And people would ask, when are we going to get there? Because we would literally get on a bus at like 5 in the morning. And we would get off at 5 in the evening. Um, and we would set up for a massive concert. And so it was a long day. And people would ask, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? His answer, it didn't matter if we just got on the bus or if we could see the church we were pulling into the parking lot. Six hours. We'll be there in six hours. People just stopped asking him. He would always say six hours, and we're like, oh, okay, fine. Um, so we'll get there when they get where. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. We'll get there when we get there, okay? C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read them? Yes, good. Okay, excellent. Excellent book. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia touch on this idea between a conversation with Lucy and Aslan. And it goes like this. Aslan says, do not look so sad. We're going to meet again soon. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? I call all times soon. We'll get there when we get there. Six hours. What more of a timeline. C.S. Lewis was taking a biblical truth. When God is ready, we will be there. We need to be content with God's understanding of time. Our job is not to know the time, nor to be led astray in the times between. Our job is to be continually faithful to Jesus, regardless of how long it takes. No matter how long it takes, no matter what the disciples think they are going to face along the way, Jesus is clear. The church is going to keep going. He is going to return soon. They are only to keep believing, to keep the faith, to keep loving, to keep serving, to keep praying. In short terms, Jesus told his disciples, you will personally experience everything I just talked about. These things, quote, will not pass away until, you will not pass away until all these things have taken place. He is telling his disciples in relationship to the AD 70 persecution, you will suffer soon, but be faithful. And then he texts this on the end, which was a message to reorient their eyes away from the, we're going to what now? In the soon now? He wanted to take their eyes back from fear and put it to faith. He said this, the world might fall apart and pass away, but my words never will. Jesus wants them to know that even through their portion of life might be tough, even though it would look like they would lose everything, they will never lose God and they will never lose his word. His word, which sustains life, and more than that, creates life, will never pass away. The world will fall apart, but his word will endure. That is the last thing he left them with when he said, things are going to get tough for you as you follow me in these days that are soon. Now, what are we supposed to take away from this? Because what we just read has primarily already happened. There are some nods to what will happen, but for the most and direct part, that passage is all past. Jesus was speaking specifically to his disciples. We can look at history and go, that all happened, and that, that was terrible. 
for them. That was horrible. They lived through some tough stuff. What can we glean for our life today from the things that have been talked about this morning in Scripture? From those who have walked faithfully with Jesus before us in the faith? There are four things, okay? God's kingdom will advance. God's kingdom will advance. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy. God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. And all means all. So what he is going to do is be long-suffering. Give every opportunity for everyone on the face of the planet to receive him. Does that mean that as he's giving every opportunity for every person on the planet to receive him, we are living in the midst of some really terrible stuff? Yes. We as Christians, can we say, man, it stinks to live among what we live with the world in sin. Things are going bad and interpersonal relationships get broken and I sin and people sin against me. And that really stinks. But I will endure faithfully this life And I will be long-suffering because God is long-suffering so that by an all and any means people might come to know who God is so that his kingdom might be advanced. God wants all people to love him with their heart and soul and mind and strength, which is exactly why he came to earth and died and rose so that our sins will not separate us from him forever, but that we can be reconciled through his blood and his sinless life be forgiven and made whole, created anew, come to walk with him, a knowledge of the truth, so that we aren't led astray by lies, but that we are led into the truth of the gospel of Christ. He is patient and gives us every opportunity to receive this free offer of life and grace and truth. And when we have received it, then he says to us, now live faithfully as I'm being long-suffering for others. God's kingdom will advance. It will move forward. Scripture says the gates of hell cannot overcome it. Amen? Nothing can overcome God's kingdom. His word endures. Here's the second thing we need to know. Trials are not going to last forever. We need to hold on to this one. Trials are not going to last forever. Um, It says in James, consider it all joy. Joy, J-O-Y, joy. My brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, consider it a joy when things are difficult because you lean into God and you become mature in Him, crafted in His image. When you go, I can't do this. And God says, you're right, you can't, but I can through you if you will lean back and let me work through you and in you. And then you will begin to look more like Jesus. And that is the hope of our life. God is gracious and merciful. And scripture tells us that weeping will last for a night, but J-O-Y joy comes in the morning if we let the dawn of Christ shine on us and in us through our trials. He sees our sufferings, right? the kind we inflict upon ourselves and others, the kind that are inflicted upon us, and the kind that we endure simply because we live in a world that is decaying in sin and lawlessness. 
He sees those kinds of things and he says, I want to enter into that with you. I want to walk that road with you. I want to encourage you and mature you through that. God's kingdom will advance and trials will not last forever. And believers are called to be faithful until the end. James 1.4. This picks up where I left off in that last verse about joy and trials producing endurance. So let endurance have its perfect effect. That you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. And nothing means nothing. Right. You will lack for nothing in him. No matter what comes our way, we are called to endure. We are not called to be led astray by false gospels or anything that sounds enticing and tickles our ears and sounds better or easier. We are called to continue faithfully on the path that God has set for us. No matter what comes our way, we follow Jesus. Persevere till the end. And the end is defined like this. Your very last breath or Jesus coming back. That's the end. Either you breathe your last or Jesus shows up in a flash of light or however it is that he decides to make his presence known. That's the end. So you are to endure until your very last breath or you are to endure as if you are enduring for your very last breath and then Jesus shows up. But your endurance never changes. We must live with an urgency and expectation that soon is now, that very next second. Soon is upon us. We must have that urgency. But we are not to let that expectation and urgency that the end is tomorrow to turn our faith into fear. We are to live in faith, not fear. Lastly this, God's word will endure forever. I am the Alpha, the Omega, says God, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. This is Jesus speaking in Revelation. When everything else seems shaky in our physical world, we must remember that God is outside the physical. He created it. He's Lord over it. He has all of the power and authority. He was, he is, and he is to come. On the timeline of human history, he was before human history. He is walking through human history with us. And he is at the end of human history and beyond into where our minds can't fathom. He endures forever. The question we need to ask ourselves when it comes to life and faith is when things get tough, do we choose to believe that we can endure all things through him, with him, by him, regardless of what comes our way, even if we don't know how long it's going to take. Soon, well, according to God and Aslan, all times are soon. Okay? That is how we need to live, with urgency and expectation and faith. Why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll worship and ask God to receive our worship, to receive our fears, to receive our, um, our faith, and to mature in us a likeness after his own heart. Father, we've read some really difficult stuff in scripture today. It's only going to get more difficult to hear next week. 
And I know that this is a topic that can cause a lot of confusion and fear in the hearts of people. Man, it's just enough to turn on the news or read my Facebook feed sometimes. There's a lot of misconceptions about when, but you didn't ever really give us the when. You just said, it's going to happen eventually. What you've called us to be is prepared. What you've called us to be is faithful. What you've called us to be is loving to one another, never giving up on the things in which you've taught us. As we worship you today, Father, would you open our eyes to help us see you very clearly in and amidst everything that's going on in our life and the noise and the chaos of family and friends and work tradition and culture and fears, just kind of push all those things aside, peel back the curtain before our eyes and help us see you so that we can focus our eyes on you and you alone to have the faith to continue to walk the life you've called us to walk. We give you all the praise, Lord, and all the glory, and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. When things are chaotic, you're not. You're not a God of chaos. You're a God of calm. You're a God of peace. You're one who enters into the chaos and helps bring it right again. We ask you to enter into our chaos this morning, Lord, and bring righteousness and peace and faith and endurance and hope where it is needed, salvation where it is needed, healing where it is needed. And because of who you are, We will follow you forever and ever and ever. You are a great God, and we are your children this morning. We proclaim that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Receive the benediction. God started the world. God will at some point figure out how to end it. Your job is to live faithfully with him in the meantime. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.